and good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our sermon series going through the book of Esther. And we've entitled our sermon series, Hidden King. And the reason we've entitled it Hidden King is because the Lord works in the book of Esther, in the events of Esther, in less obvious ways than in other places in Scripture. Like, for example, in the events of the Exodus. He works in less obvious ways, yet nonetheless he works. And the events of Esther took place between the years of 486 in 464 BC, when Persia was the dominant world power, and the Jewish people were living under the rule of the Persian Empire, as were many other people groups. And some of the Jews lived in the Persian capital of Susa, including the main characters of our story. And so far, we have seen the unlikely ascent of a young Jewish orphan named Esther to the place of Queen of Persia. We have also seen the hatred of the Jewish people from a man named Haman, who was the king's number two man. Haman devised a plot to have the Jews destroyed, all because one Jewish man named Mordecai refused to bow down to him and honor him. And Mordecai urged Esther, whom he was raising, his cousin, to act and go before the king to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people so they would not be destroyed by their enemies. Even though she knew she would be putting herself in danger, she agreed to go to the king to plead for her people. And she began by going to the king and inviting him and Haman to a party. And last week we read about the first party that Esther invited King Ahasuerus and Haman to join. And Haman left the party in great spirits, feeling pretty good about himself and the fact that only he and the king were invited to the queen's party. He was happy and in a good mood. But on his way home, Mordecai killed his good vibes. When Haman passed by Mordecai, Mordecai did not honor him in any way. Haman couldn't handle this. He became so angry with Mordecai. He went home to his wife and friends and recounted to them all the ways the king honored him and told them of all of his success and all the good things going on in his life. He even bragged about the fact that Queen Esther only invited him and the king to her party. Nonetheless, he said to his wife and friends, yet all this is worth nothing to me. Nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. The man was so consumed with receiving honor that he couldn't enjoy all his wealth and all his success and being the number two guy in the vast Persian empire if one man didn't honor him. So his wife and friends told him to build gallows and then go to the king in the morning to tell him to have Mordecai hanged on those gallows. Then they said, you will be able to enjoy yourself at Esther's second party. Haman thought that was a great plan, and he had the gallows constructed. This morning, we pick up in chapter 6. I'm going to read chapter 6, and I encourage you to follow along. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. 
And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom he, the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Last week, A.J. preached from chapter 5, and he used uh, the analogy of electrons to describe the presence of the Lord in the book of Esther. And if you missed uh, last week, A.J., who's one of our lay pastors, uh, preached on chapter 5. And if you don't know, A.J. is a a science teacher at Cedar Park uh, High School. Uh, Cedar Park Christian High School. He teaches various uh, subjects, uh, science subjects, and he was explaining that electrons, uh, that no one has ever seen an electron. I did not know that. I was never aware of one. I mean, I've never personally seen an electron, but I didn't know that no one had seen an electron. And so he was explaining this because they're so small. And I was asking him about this after service last Sunday. And he went on to explain to me that if you were to uh, blow up the size of an atom to the size of the kingdom, the nucleus would be the size of like an orange sitting on the pitcher's mound. And he said, and all that space in between the nucleus and the outer part of the, the kingdom would be the space where electrons move. And he said in that, in that uh, analogy, electrons would be the size of a grain of sand, each one. So that's how, that's how tiny they are, and, and they move about. And he says, no one has ever seen an electron, but we know about electrons because of their effect that they have. So I use this to describe the book of Esther. You don't see 
God's hand working in the more obvious ways that we see in other places of Scripture. But we know he's working based on the events that, taking, that take place. You cannot ascribe these events to mere coincidence. And that is true of the entire book of Esther, but I don't know if there's a place where that is more true than right here in chapter 6. In this chapter, we see the invisible and sovereign hand of the Lord working in amazing and even comical ways. The very night that Haman was building gallows to hang Mordecai, the king couldn't sleep. Why of all nights? Could he not sleep on this night in particular? I mean, he just partied with Esther. He just had a lot to eat, a lot to drink. You'd think he would be plenty of tired, plenty tired to, to be able to fall asleep. But why of all nights was this the night that he could not sleep? And when he could not sleep, consider all his options. Consider all the options he had to remedy this problem of not being able to sleep. Think of all the options at his disposal for how he could use his time during this sleepless night. He had everything. He had anything. He could do anything to entertain himself or to help himself fall asleep. But what did he choose? To have a book read to him. Probably a boring one. A book that merely recounted memorable deeds. He chose what may have been the most boring option. And in verse 2 we read that, And it was found written how Mordecai had told him, or told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Of all the memorable deeds, he hears and asks a question about this one that happened probably five years prior. He asked, how did we honor Mordecai? Now remember, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai's deed in saving the life of the king by uncovering this plot to kill him, his deed was recorded but not rewarded. His deed was recorded in this book of memorable deeds, but he was given no reward for saving the life of the king, which was unusual. How did we honor Mordecai, the king asked. The answer was nothing. Nothing was done for Mordecai. That answer was not acceptable to the king. He wanted to remedy this immediately. And as the early morning light began to break on the palace, who showed up in the king's court but Haman? Haman had arrived early. He had arrived first thing in the morning. Maybe he couldn't sleep either. He was eager to proceed with his plan to have Mordecai executed. He did not want to waste any time that to go before the king and request that Mordecai be put to death. And the king seemed to do whatever Haman wanted. So I think he was banking on the fact that he was going to get there early, make this request of the king, and carry out his plan in timely fashion. But when the king called him in, he didn't even have a chance to make his request before the king asked him a question. What should be done? What should be done, Haman? What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman thought, 
Well, he must be talking about me. Who else would he want to honor besides me? Haman had a very high view of himself. Low self-esteem was not his problem. He thought he was great. He thought he was special. He thought he was worthy of the highest honor. Clearly, he thought too highly of himself. Honoring the Lord was nowhere on his radar. And what we see is that his failure to honor the Lord contributed significantly to his demise. In light of this, I think it's wise for us to consider what the scripture teaches us about giving and receiving honor. The Lord teaches us how to think about this and how to navigate this so that we don't go the way of Haman. First, I think we need to acknowledge that many of us may be tempted to think too highly of ourselves. Sometimes in obvious ways and sometimes in subtle ways. As followers of Jesus, we are commanded to guard against this. In Romans 12, 3, Paul wrote, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to guard against thinking too highly of ourselves, but rather think of ourselves with sober judgment. As those whose minds have been renewed in Christ, we are able to have a right view of ourselves. And as we grow in Christ, we become increasingly secure and satisfied in our identity as one who belongs to Jesus. We know that God has accepted us in Christ Jesus. He has adopted us into his family in Christ Jesus, and we know him as our heavenly father, and our place in his family is secure. He loves us, he accepts us, and he delights in us. And as we grow in our understanding and our knowledge of this, we are secure in our identity as children of God, as those who belong to Jesus. We no longer fear man or need the affirmation of man because we have the love of God. We have his blessing. We have his pleasure. We have his delight. He has set his affection upon us. And as we grow in our understanding, our knowledge, and our experience of his affection, of his love, of his affirmation, we no longer need the things that other people need. We no longer seek the things that other people seek. We are secure in our identity. We are satisfied in our identity in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to try to prove ourselves to anyone. We also know that anything good in us or anything good that comes through us is by the grace of God. We know that God in his kindness works good in our lives and uses us to accomplish his good purposes. We know that we can't take credit for this. We know that we can't brag or boast about this. We know that God receives all the credit and all the glory and all the honor for the good that happens in us and through us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul said, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
He wanted the Corinthians to understand that all their abilities, opportunities, and blessings are from God. Having a right view of ourselves doesn't mean we deny that God has given us certain gifts and abilities. Maybe God has given you the gift of mercy. And you're good at showing kindness to people in need. Maybe he's given you the gift of hospitality and you're good at warmly welcoming people in to your home. Maybe he's given you the gift of evangelism and you're good at sharing Christ with people in your life. Maybe he's given you the gift of teaching and you're good at instructing people in God's word. Maybe he's given you a gift of administration and you're good at organizing and planning that helps to facilitate ministry, that is a blessing in the life of the church. Maybe he's given you the gift of service and you just love serving in any practical way possible. God has gifted each and every one of us and that is a good thing. And having a right view of ourselves does not mean we need to deny this or act as if it is not so. Moreover, guarding against thinking too highly of yourself should not prevent you from graciously receiving encouragement. We are commanded to encourage one another. We read... We read these commands in Scripture to encourage one another. So when someone encourages you, you don't need to respond by deflecting. You don't need to respond with false humility, saying, oh, no, no, it's, it's not true. I'm, I'm not actually good at that. No, instead you're able to receive encouragement graciously with gratitude, acknowledging that the Lord ultimately deserves the credit. We are also commanded to honor one another. In Romans 12, 10, we read, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. It is good to show honor to one another. But while we are commanded to honor one another, thinking too highly of ourselves is when we believe we deserve honor, when we believe we ought to be honored. On the one hand, it is good to honor one another. On the other hand, we have to be careful not to think that we deserve it, or we've earned it, or that we ought to be honored. In Luke 17, 10, Jesus said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I don't think he expects us to say this out loud every time someone encourages us or honors us, but it certainly does need to be the attitude of our heart. It is good to give encouragement. It is good to give honor. And therefore, we ought to expect to receive encouragement and to receive honor. But when we do so, the attitude of our heart ought to be, Lord, I am your servant. I am doing this as unto you. Anything good you do in me or through me is because of your grace and your kindness. You are the one who deserves the honor and the glory. Thinking too highly of yourself involves believing you deserve the credit for how the Lord uses you. Thinking too highly of yourself involves failing to recognize your own sinfulness. While at the same time, it's good for us to recognize that, the God, that God has given us gifts, that God has given us strengths and abilities, we also need to remember that we're sinners. Sometimes people help us by pointing this out to us. If someone does, you should receive that as kindness. Charles Spurgeon said, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. 
if he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have a moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. Thinking too highly of yourself involves failing to recognize that you also have weaknesses. You have gifts. You have strengths. Praise God, you also have weaknesses. Thinking too highly of ourselves is a failure to recognize that there are things that we're simply not good at. We're not good at them, and we need to recognize that, acknowledge that. Thinking too highly of yourself involves failing to recognize that you need the church community to help you in your walk with Christ and to hold you accountable. We are all sinners. We are all in need of help. Every single one of us needs the help of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to benefit from the gifts and the strengths and the abilities of others just as, Lord willing, people will benefit from our gifts and our strengths and our abilities. Having a right view of yourself, viewing yourself with sober judgment, is an acknowledgement, yet, yes, the Lord has given me gifts and strengths. That is because he is gracious, not because I deserve. And I am to use them for the good of others and for his glory. And it's also acknowledging that I have weaknesses and other people have gifts and strengths that I don't have, and I need to benefit from them as well. So with this in mind, we need to guard against thinking too highly of ourselves. We are called to give encouragement and show honor to others. And when we receive encouragement and honor, we should be humble, gracious, and grateful while seeking to give all the glory and honor to the Lord, knowing that he is the one who is truly worthy of all honor. Sometimes when we have an inflated view of ourselves and believe we ought to be honored, we experience the pain of having the, that bubble burst. Haman experienced that pain in about as big a way as you can imagine. He thought this was his chance to receive the highest of honors, so he didn't hold back. He told the king, oh, whoever this man is, give him the royal robes, which the king himself has worn. Let him ride the king's horse, the very horse that the, the king has ridden. And while you're at it, give him a crown. Then have one of your most noble officials parade him around the city saying, Thus shall it be done to the man the king's delight, who the king delights to honor. He didn't hold back. This was his moment. He wanted to be treated like the king. Being number two, being the number two guy was good and all, but you know what's better than being the number two guy? Being treated like your number one. And that's what he was chasing after. He fully indulged his desire to receive honor and praise from man. Haman gives us a picture of where idolatry leads us. What do I mean? When we think of idols and idolatry, we might think of physical statues that people bow down to or burn incense in front of. But what we see in God's word is that we can have invisible, unseen idols in our hearts. In Colossians 3, 5, we read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
One definition of that Greek word translated covetousness is a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. Idols are present in our hearts when we desire something more and more or when we desire to have something more than other people, whether we need it or not. Idols are present in our hearts when we believe the thing we desire will finally make us happy, whole, or satisfied. For Haman, he had a strong desire to possess more and more honor and praise, and he wanted to have more than anyone else. He was already the number two guy. He was already exceedingly wealthy. He already had a large family, tons of respect, tons of honor. He had it all, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to be treated with honor equal to the king. He literally wanted to wear the king's robes, ride the king's horse, wear a crown, and have someone parade him around. It wasn't enough to be number two in the vast Persian empire. He wanted more. What Haman did not realize is that no matter how much he fed that desire, it would never be enough even if he was the man whom the king was referring to, and even if he did get paraded around in the king's robes, on the king's horse, wearing the king's crown, you know what happened the next day? He'd want more. It's not as if that event would have fully and finally satisfied him. It's not as though he would have gotten through that day and then said, that's it, now I'm done. Someone else can have all the honor now. No. It wouldn't have been enough. At the peak of his wealth, John D. Rockefeller had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. When asked how much money is enough, he said just a little bit more. We could apply that answer to so many things if I just had a little bit more. Are you ever tempted to believe that you will have happiness, satisfaction, or contentment in your life if a certain desire is fulfilled? If I just had a little more of this. If only this part of my life were a little better. If only this thing fell into place. The hard truth we need to realize is that whatever it is we desire or pursue will not ultimately and finally satisfy us. We will always be left wanting more. Well, the good news is that there is a remedy, and his name is Jesus. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul wrote, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can be content in Christ because he is infinitely better and infinitely more satisfying than anything else we chase after. When we are content in Christ, we gain something far better than anything else we might desire. In 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, we read, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, with these we will be content. We can be content in Jesus Christ. We can be content 
in hard circumstances. We can be content in good circumstances. We can be content in Christ. Idolatry leads us down the path of disappointment and destruction. Inordinate desires will always leave us wanting more. If you are not a Christian, our greatest hope and prayer for you is that you will know Jesus Christ. You see, if you're not a Christian, then there's hope for you. There's hope when you don't feel satisfied in this life. There's hope for you when you feel like you're always chasing more and more, but it's never filling you up. See, God made you in his image. He made you to know him, to love him, to glorify him, to obey him, to enjoy him forever. But every single one of us, you included, have turned our backs on the Lord. We've all sinned against him. We've all rebelled against our good king. And yet God in his mercy has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve because of our rebellion. He has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve and instead receive the gift of eternal life with him in his kingdom for all of eternity. And he did so by providing Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And he did so by living a perfectly sinless life and then dying upon the cross as a sacrifice. He died as a substitute to take the punishment we deserve in our place so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. And then he conquered death through his resurrection. He rose from the grave conquering death, thus guaranteeing that he can give us the gift of eternal life. And he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And those who believe in Christ will be saved and welcomed into his kingdom. And we will be eternally satisfied in Christ. Dear friend, if you are not a Christian, we urge you, believe in Christ. Be saved. Let today be the day of your salvation. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the only one who can truly and fully satisfy you. Believe in Christ. While Haman was captive to his desire to receive more and more honor, but in a moment his world came crashing down. After presenting his rather extreme answer to the king, the king said, go and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Not only was Haman not the man whom the king had in mind, but the man he did have in mind was the man Haman hated the most, the man who ruined his life, the man he came to destroy. He entered the king's palace with a plan to have Mordecai executed and left with a command to honor Mordecai even above himself. It was worst case scenario. It was a gut punch, to put it mildly. He was devastated. Haman would have never imagined that he would have to do that day what he had to do. Mordecai would be treated and honored like the king, and Haman was the one who had to parade him around, calling out, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I'm not sure if we can comprehend the depths of Haman's humiliation. 
Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If there was ever a story to illustrate this proverb, this is it. Haman sought his own glory and honor, and he was put to shame. After Mordecai returned to the king's gate, Haman returned home uh, mourning with his head covered. Haman's downfall, his complete and utter humiliation, and his shame provides a picture of what happens to those who do not trust in the Lord. Provides a picture to what hap- of what happens to the Lord's enemies. On the other hand, in Psalm 25, 1 and 2, which Nate read earlier, we read, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Haman, who was wantonly treacherous, was ashamed as he walked around the city honoring Mordecai. But those who trust in the Lord, those who wait on him, will not be put to shame. As a follower of Christ, you may face ridicule in this life. You may be treated poorly. But in the final account, when it matters most, you will not be put to shame. After Haman returned home from this humiliating event, he sought counsel again with his wife and friends. He recounted for them his very bad day. What happened next is one of my favorite parts of the story, which probably says something about me and my twisted sense of humor. Remember, at the end of chapter 5, Haman explained why he couldn't enjoy any of the good things in his life. He said, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. A key phrase in that sentence is, Mordecai, the Jew. We also saw last week that Haman's wife and friends offered a solution to his problem with Mordecai, the Jew. They advised him to build gallows so that he would have Mordecai hanged on them. If Mordecai the Jew is causing you all these problems, kill him. But what do we see here at the end of chapter 6? Haman's wife and wise men tell him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Where was that little bit of knowledge 24 hours earlier? You should have Mordecai the Jew put to death. If he's Jewish, then you're going to be destroyed. (laughs) Tuesday night, kill Mordecai the Jew. Wednesday night, if he's Jewish, you're going to lose. I mean, this is comically bad counsel. I wonder, what was their excuse? Kill Mordecai the Jew. Oh, he's literally Jewish? Like, literally? Yeah. Mm. You're going to die. Have fun at Esther's party, though. (laughs) Proverbs 13, 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Haman's wife and friends became wise a day late. We all need wise counsel. We need counsel from godly sisters and brothers in Christ who love the word and are seeking to faithfully walk with Jesus. We need wise counsel. And we see the devastating consequences of bad counsel here in our text. But we need to be people who are seeking the Lord earnestly, 
in prayer, in the word, so that we might give good, godly, wise counsel. And we need to be on the receiving end of wise counsel so we will walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and so that we will not walk in a path of destruction like Haman. One final thing I think we should notice is the certainty of Haman's wife and friends regarding the success of the Jewish people. The author does not explain for us the reason they were certain that Haman would fall if Mordecai was Jewish. What had they seen? What had they heard? To whom or what did they attribute the certainty of the success of the Jewish people and the failure of the enemy, their enemies? If he's Jewish, you are going to fall. Not you might fall. Oh, it might not work out for you. If he's Jewish, you will fall. They expressed this confidence, this certainty that the Jewish people would succeed and their enemies would fail. Where did this come from? Why did these pagan people express such certainty and confidence? We don't know. But the statement does fit well with a major theme in the story of Esther. Namely, God's people will be delivered and the enemies of God's people will fall. What's amazing about verse 13 is that the certainty or confidence that is expressed by these pagan individuals is the kind of confidence that had often been missing among the people of Israel. For example, think of the people of Israel in the book of Numbers. The Israelites during that time were the ones who experienced the Exodus event. I mean, these were the Israelites who witnessed God work in an obvious, visible, powerful way. They had seen the Lord defeat Pharaoh and his army in a way that was unmistakably the hand of the Lord. They watched the Lord completely and utterly destroy their powerful enemy. And after they were brought out of Egypt, they were going through the desert toward the land the Lord had promised to give them, the land of Canaan. And in Numbers 13, the Lord told Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan, which was the land he promised to give them. It was a good land, and the spies came back with a report that it was a good land. But, some of them said, the people in the land are big. They're really big. We can't go up against them. We're going to lose. Ten of the spies said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Joshua and Caleb exhorted the people and said, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They understood it. If the Lord is with them, our enemies will fall. We just saw that in Egypt. Why would this be any different? Why would the Lord deliver us from Pharaoh and his army in such a powerful way to let us die here in the land of Canaan? It was obvious. It should have been obvious to all of them. They should have had confidence and certainty that because the Lord was with them, they would succeed and any enemies who opposed them would fall. Sadly, the Israelites believed the ten spies and they rebelled against the Lord and it did not go well for them. Joshua and Caleb knew that the size and strength of their enemy did not matter. They knew their enemies would fall because the Lord was with them. God is faithful to his people. He will not allow evil to prevail. Enemies of God's people will ultimately fall. 
Haman's wife and friends seemed to understand this, even if they didn't know why. We do know why. We know that the Lord is working to bring about his cosmic plan of redemption, whereby he is gathering for himself a people, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, who will cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is a wonderful and glorious plan, and it is a plan that will not fail. Anyone who poses the Lord and his people will fall, but those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you for what we see here in Esther chapter 6, and we pray that you will encourage us and build us up with what we learn about you, what we learn about ourselves in your word. We pray that we will be people who have confidence in you, certainty that you are working to accomplish your plan, and any enemies of your people will fall. We pray that, Lord, as we have confidence in you, We pray that we will not think too highly of ourselves, but rather we will think of ourselves with sober judgment. We pray that you would give us a right view of ourselves and a desire to bring all honor and glory to your name. We pray that as we do so, we pray that we would be reminded that we will not be put to shame. We thank you for Jesus. Help us to trust in Jesus, to be satisfied in Jesus, to be content in Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.